0: I think one thing that I want to continue to be better at personally and I think the recent events with John seeking medical help for, you know, having depression and being honest and vulnerable about that is something that I personally need to make sure I'm doing more of and taking care of myself. They say you can't serve other people unless you know you're you're taking care of of yourself first put on your own oxygen mask first This is the
1: visible voices podcast. I'm your host dr. Risa Lewis before we get started. Here's a word about the podcast revitalize women
0: Healthcare is a dumpster fire
1: right now But there are people out there that have figured out a formula to go from surviving to thriving Listen to the Revitalizing Doctor podcast to hear inspiring stories of women
0: physicians that are changing healthcare.
1: Hi listeners, thanks for joining, and I am super psyched to bring you my conversation with Annie Wu Henry. Annie is a social media and digital strategy expert, specifically for progressive organizations and campaigns. She believes that we need on-the-ground organizing, electoral work, and the online media to drive progress in society. And guess what? She's taken a hand in contributing to all three. Most recently, she was the social media producer for John Fetterman's successful Senate campaign in Pennsylvania. As a strategist, creator, and political operative, she's been profiled by the New York Times and contributed to some of the largest online advocacy platforms. So I followed Annie and her work throughout the Fetterman campaign, and it turns out she lives here in Philadelphia. I reached out to her, she said yes to joining an episode, and so, well let's get to the conversation. To what extent does responsibility in feeling responsible play a role in what you put out on social media?
0: I mean, social media, there's huge responsibility because as we're seeing now, this online space and, you know, the question of free speech. And again, as a journalist, my journalism background, like I am a proponent of free speech. But it is this new gray area. And it's not new at this point, but figuring it out in social media, it's it's this new space that we're figuring out how do we regulate it and not infringe upon First Amendment rights, but at the same time, make sure people aren't harmed, make sure misinformation, which can cause harm, isn't spread. And how do we do that on some of these things that are extremely, extremely important? And we saw that obviously with, election information we see that with you know medical information we see that with issue advocacy and these narratives that are sometimes not correct but are very much there's there's online propaganda there are now the algorithms and making sure that those are checked and making sure that the people behind the algorithms are checked and so there's so much responsibility and as you know a person that isn't in charge of the algorithms and isn't in charge of these platforms and there's responsibility for me, too, though. There's responsibility for me understanding all of these aspects and what I am, you know, taking in the content I'm taking in and doing my own due diligence of fact checking or where I'm getting this information. And then as a person putting information out, there's my responsibility of ensuring that that is being done in a correct manner that is not going to be aiding to a lot of this noise And also this potential harm and misinformation that that does happen on the internet and so there's there's so much responsibility on all ends and I always look at it as What am I responsible for and what can I handle and making sure that I, I do that and th- to the best of my abilities You have quoted
1: a quote of AOC that resonates with you. I don't want to be a savior I want to be a mirror
0: Yeah, I think that, you know, a lot of social media, I think people, and in all all ways, but people can see someone doing something and saying something and them saying, you know, you should you should be president someday or you should whatever. And I get these comments sometimes and I like, there's A, some imposter syndrome, but B also like, just because I I make a post doesn't mean I should be representing whatever. Um, And I, but I think sometimes being that platform that articulates feelings or values or perspectives that other people experience and maybe they haven't found the voice or understood how to you know articulate that I get that seeing that sometimes you're like oh this person you're you're it and I don't think that's it I think it's that like she said you should be a mirror you should be being that voice that all these other people do feel and relate to and talking about things that so many people care about, but understanding and being as the person doing it, understanding that that is not necessarily while we have unique experiences, that is not a unique thing to you that you are just sharing something that's personal to you in X, Y, Z ways, but you are also speaking for so many other people And that doesn't make you better than them. And I think there's so much of ego in, you know, the online space in politics and all, you know, everything. And it's really checking that and keeping yourself really grounded of obviously understanding the importance of things, but also understanding that it's not about you. And in any of this work, it's never about you. It's about the work and the issues
1: Everybody's experiencing it. It's just maybe they they haven't found their own words, or they haven't seen it, read it, experienced those words. So you're sort of normalizing these experiences. You wrote a very powerful piece called "Stop Calling Women the C Word." Explain to our listeners what that was about.
0: Oh well, that's a, a throwback. At this point, um, I wrote it my senior year. It was my last op-ed in our school publication, and one of the most personal pieces I've probably written just because of like the backstory and my experiences, but at the time, and I think now it's, it's almost overused to the point that we forget the actual meaning and power behind the word gaslighting. And the C word that I'm referring to is crazy. And it's not, you know, the, the derogatory term that a lot of people would think of. And it was, it was supposed to be a play on words, but you know, a lot of people, especially women and especially women of color, uh, are called crazy. And instead of calling them a better adjective that better describes what they are experiencing, whether that is anger or whether that is joy or whether that is, you know, they are very passionate about something. They are called crazy. And I personally have, you know had my own experiences of people not asking me for my what my experiences were or where I'm coming from with my actions and they just have reverted to that I was doing things based out of baseless emotional response and out of just being insane which is you know, a psychological term. And that is not the case. Like there was reasoning behind w- what I was doing or what I was saying. And after actually that publication came out, I talked to a few people that were involved in different experiences in my life where I was I was drawing on that. And they were like, wow, I didn't even understand. And I was like, right, you, you didn't. And you never took the time to ask. And you never tried to understand what was going on and you just created this persona in your mind of why i was doing things and then perpetuated that in a way that caused harm to myself and like i just think that people need to understand that their actions have power and their words have power and if we don't take the time to listen to other people or hear them out like we can cause harm to them without under understanding it when you
1: describe your growing up experience uh, being transracially adopted from china and finding your voice finding your identity where do you think adoption plays a role
0: i think that adoption and being you know where i am today is such a key part of how i think about just the world because so much of my life, and I understand this, be- or think about this because of being an adoptee, so much of my life is circumstantial, and I didn't have anything to do with it. And that is, you know, when we've talked about in recent times, the Nepo baby, like, I I understand that there's merit to hard work, and I don't want to discount my own, you know, abilities and work and effort and time to get to where I wanted to go. But a lot of it is also privileges and things beyond my control. And so, you know, I grew up in a Christian household because I was adopted by two Christian people, which was fine. And I have, you know, a faith to an extent and have figured that out as I've gotten older, but I could have very easily had a bat mitzvah and been, uh, because if I were adopted by, to Jewish parents. And I, you know, if I would have stayed in China, I probably would have ended up being, you know, Buddhist because that is what the pr- primary religion over there is. And, you know, I grew up in a small rural conservative area, which very much based how I experienced life as an adolescent, but also then definitely formed how I viewed things. And then Also my financial situation, like I grew up very middle class and I could have grown up in a very, you know, high class situation where I didn't have to think about finances in the same way. And so much of this was again, beyond my control. And that is because I was adopted and I am very lucky and grateful and have, you know, the most fantastic family in the world. But Keeping that in mind and understanding when I'm talking to other people, when I'm talking to people that don't come from certain privileges that I you know, have, they a lot of times also did not have a say in the situation that they were dealt. And as we talk about things like systemic racism and sis- poverty and a lot of these issues that are very systemic, we have to understand that people didn't choose this and the circumstances then make a lot of things exponentially harder as well as they're all tied together. And so I think being adopted has, has guided me and just, I think under being more hopefully empathetic and understanding to that. What keeps you up at night? So many things. My parents actually joke that I'm still on China time because I am just a night owl and I'm not a morning person. But I think that I do the work that I do and I talk about the things that I talk about and have always because I think if I were not somewhat involved and if I were not putting my efforts and energy and time and resources um, into the work, I would like I would spiral because there's a lot of messed up stuff in this world. And a lot of it is, again, very deeply rooted and all tied together in a big knot that is really hard to untangle. And so much of it is beyond my control. And I think when I start to think about those things, they say ignorance is bliss. The more I start to learn about history or our systems and how things work or don't work, usually, I it, it gets really dark and it gets really scary and hard to think about how, you know, how are we going to get out of this or how do we do better? And that is, again, why I said, like, I had to be a part in some way of, or another, I said, like, of the midterms, because if I didn't, I would wake up on election, the day after election day and I'd say, I could have been doing more. And I think I have to just, I keep doing the work and that's why I also, like, my first thing, and I think a coping mechanism is what can I do? Because if I don't, it just feels really helpless. If I don't do something, I feel like I start to get into, well, no one can do anything. Like, how do we get out of this? And so it's just the action. I I have to. And I think that honestly being involved and doing all that I can helps me not stay up at night about all of these things because it's like I am doing what I can where I can, how I can, um, and that is, that is all I can control. And as someone who's like, as we talked about earlier, like trying not to be as, understanding I can't be in control of everything, um, like that is, that is how I try to keep going about things. But I, I, I don't sleep a lot.
1: <laughs> Annie, you're always going to be associated with John Fetterman, the success of the John Fetterman campaign. And, you know, publicly, we see the success. What might people not know about that work and what it took out of you, the mistakes you made, the pitfalls, or things that you would never repeat the next time you go into a campaign?
0: Yeah, I mean, well, I will also say that I am one very small piece of a very large, John Fetterman for Senate puzzle of wonderful staff and family and volunteers and organizers and people all over that just were incredibly, incredibly important to the success of the campaign. And I think that what some some people don't see in politics is how hard it is. And that sounds so simple, but I think the work, the issues, all of that is hard in itself because you're talking about things like, you know, a woman's right to health care and, or a person's right to health care. And you're talking about issues that have really personally impacted people as well as you're talking about the high stakes and the pressure that we put on ourselves to be successful because it is it genuinely is there's some life and death probably consequences of not winning an election and that and the policy that will take place and So I think the stakes couldn't be higher and there's so much pressure on every single little thing to make sure it's perfect because you never know what will be that turning point. And there are so many factors that contribute to a campaign. And I think one thing that I want to continue to be better at personally, and I think the recent events with John seeking medical help for, you know, having depression and being honest and vulnerable about that is something that i personally need to make sure i'm doing more of and taking care of myself. They say you can't serve other people unless you know you're you're taking care of of yourself first. Put on your own oxygen mask first. And so i think during the campaign you're working such long hours, you're all over the place, you are feeling the pressure. You have such a limited amount of time. Everything feels like it is the most important thing in the world. And sometimes you don't do things that you need to do. And it is, I think, sometimes glamorized or it's laughed about and kind of made into a joke of like, oh, I didn't eat today. Or like, I'm on my, you know, I've only had coffee or, you know, I, I only got three hours of sleep. And Those things are not how we should be functioning as people to be our best selves and taking the time to realize what we need, being able to be vocal about that. And also then being able to follow through with that is something that I don't do enough of. I think a lot of people in the campaign space also probably don't feel enough of that. One of my friends, she just had a great tweet the other day after John's, you know, statement of that, like, we're always told that the work like is more important than us, which I said earlier, it's all about we. And, but I think we have to remember that like to be involved, for us to be involved, like we have to take care of us too. And that self-care and just self-help and health, um, is a part that I need to consistently improve upon. Yeah.
1: Yeah. I told you, people often will say to me in terms of guests on The Visible Voices, Risa, you're a doctor. Like, why do you have someone who's in politics or someone who's, who does campaign or is on social media? But bingo, you just said it. Healthcare, equity, current trends. I have another quote. Young people are often not trusted on campaigns to do stuff. Annie is what happens when you trust young people to do what they're good at.
0: That is from a very good friend of mine, Organizer Memes. <laughs> um, I think that the statement is very, very, can be used very broadly in the sense of I think a lot of times young people are underestimated or they're listened to, but they're not really heard. And so I think being given Responsibility and actual responsibility, in the sense of do this, and we're gonna trust you, is so much more powerful. And and to, to the individual, as myself, it's 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 so much more powerful than just saying we want you to do this, but we're gonna tell you how we want you to do it. And uh, you know, everything comes with strategy and risk and understand, like calculated risk and understanding why there is why we're doing what we're doing. And I will say that a lot of the things on our campaign that I did, some people on the campaign, they didn't understand. They didn't know how to make it. They didn't maybe understand the platform, but they understood what the value there was. And I don't think you have to be able to do something to understand that what's being done is important and there's value there and that someone who is an expert in that medium, in that strategy, in that realm, is to trust them and to actually trust them all out.
1: When did you first realize you had a voice and when did you start using that voice? The reason I ask those two is it's often at different periods in time, sometimes it's the same time.
0: Yeah, so I was an only child two parents that are wholesome, non-confrontational. My dad was on school board for like a year and literally stepped down because he didn't want to upset people. Uh, So they probably wonder why I am the way I am. But I think when I was in elementary school, I would listen to a song uh, by Pink, called Dear Mr. President about George W. Bush. And I probably didn't understand all of it at the time, but I did understand the No Child Left Behind line because I was currently taking PSSAs. And I would listen to that song on my first generation iPod Nano every night before the tests because my parents are both school teachers. So I had heard their thoughts and opinions on that policy and standardized testing. And that was probably my first like political act. But then, you know, in high school I watched... The debates and got more involved and talked to my friends about the election in 2012. In 2016 was my first presidential election I could vote in. And I was a student at the time in college, journalism and political science, which led to a crazy semester following that race and following that news cycle. And that is a time when I probably would have been getting more engaged, finding my voice as many do in college. But I think the outcome of that election as someone who thought she was going to be voting for the first time for the president and it being the first female president of the United States, I think that the weight just felt so much more dire after that. And what that decision for this country met was so much deeper than just one person. It was what we were accepting to be the highest position in our nation and in, in the world. And that was really terrifying. And I think it shifted from this is something I care about, and I'm passionate about to something I felt more of a need and responsibility and calling to be involved in. I'm going to bring you back to college again, your honors thesis was about the
1: intersection of identity and social media. Uh, give us the summary of that thesis. And where is it playing a role for you now?
0: Yeah, I think that social media. So I wrote the thesis from, let's see, I wrote it in 2017 uh, to 18. And I think that social media is so fascinating because it's an extension of us and a persona of us. I still say that no matter how unfiltered you want to say your social media is, it is intentional, you press send or post on every single thing that goes up or that you allow to go up. And there's thought behind that. There is psyche behind that and why you're doing that, whether it is to portray yourself a certain way to like, you want to be portrayed in however you're presenting yourself. And so I think understanding that and how that then impacts how we are IRL in real life and how we view each other. So if someone is vastly different on social media versus who they are in person, you know, you might understand that they're very different in how they portray themselves versus how they are in real life. But you're also thinking about this is a person that portrays himself wildly different online and that becomes as part of who you view them all, how you view them, and who they are as a whole rounded person in your brain. And so it was really looking at that and looking at how we use social media to create our own identity, but how we also, how it creates our perceived identities, which become real identities to other people. How are you
1: IRL versus your social media identity and persona?
0: It's funny because I like to ask people that, that I become like friends with sometimes, because I think if someone were to meet me in real life, um, aside from social media, I don't know how much they would assume that I'm on social media. Cause I, I have been actively trying to not be on my phone and like not be posting about my life every single second. I'm I take a lot of pictures and videos and then it stays in my phone sometimes forever. And then sometimes I post it a week later or whatever it might be. But I also think that if you find me just on social media, because it is so frequent and it's almost like a job at this point, And I am so honest and open, hopefully on there. I think a lot of people would also assume that I'm very online and I like, I'm always doing whatever it might be. And I think there's a balance of, of each of those two things and what is true and these are also me self perceiving myself um but i think like i'm i'm very everything i'm doing online it's it's a specific post about a specific thing and my life is not always like that i'm a very normal person and so much of my life is not captured of me making dinner or just sitting at home or what I watch on, like a lot of it I do share, but it's just snippets. And we need to understand that it is still just snippets. And there's so much outside of that. A lot of my closest friends or times that I see my family, like those are not on social media because I'm not on my phone or displaying those things. And because they're just me and a friend, both sitting on a bed and probably scrolling on Twitter or something, but there's a there is a reality outside of it um one of my friends from the campaign I asked them um and he was like you're cooler in real life and I was like what does that mean because I don't think I'm cool no matter what I'm never a cool girl I am a I am a talkative girl. I am an energetic girl. I'm a passion like, I am not cool. Um, but that was, like, interesting to hear. I have another friend on the campaign that he does not have a social media presence. And when he found out that I had an Instagram and however many followers I had, he was like, wow, like, I would assume that you are... This self-absorbed on your phone, always only taking pictures of yourself, like narcissist that doesn't care about anyone. And I was like, oh my God, like, I hope that's not how I'm perceived, but it's, it's just interesting. And I always am, I'm ask. I try to be as authentic as I can be online, knowing that it is still just social media. But I'm always also asking people and being like, is it being perceived the way that I hope it is? Because I, I, I also am aware of that.
1: Tomorrow is your birthday. Today is John Lewis's birthday. And he spoke about legacy. Some people think that's age related. I don't. What do you want your legacy to be?
0: I mean, I feel like it's a cliche, but they're cliches for a reason. And I think it's just to leave the world just a little bit better than I found it. And that doesn't have to be in these huge overarching massive ways. Like if I could do that that'll be awesome, but I think it's just like if I can make some so much of life is about the little things and I think that's when we remember people. We we don't remember them for, you know, their their paychecks or their you know, house or whatever. It's it's the little things that they did, the little things that they said. And so I think if I can just impact a few people or one person or makes, that's how I try to go about my days. Like if I can just like smile at someone and I don't know what they're going through, if that makes their day a little, you never know. So I think it's just like trying to do little things throughout my life to hopefully make small impacts because small impacts are still impacts and they add up. Um, that is what I'd like to do. And if I can, do things that contribute to larger movements or, you know, issues that I care about, that is just icing on the cake.
1: The Risa Wrap-Up. First of all, many thanks to Annie and her team for making this conversation happen. I had so much fun speaking with Annie, and in fact, she joined me in my home podcasting studio. Things that inspire and things that I learned from Annie. Number one, you have a voice, everybody has a voice and using that voice can happen at any age, any stage. Number two, advocacy. Don't be afraid to advocate and speak up for things that are important to you that speak to your heart, speak to your brain. Number three, equity. Annie is driven and guided by equity. And with this, I resonate. And you audience, I hope, resonate with this too. That's it for this week, audience. See you next time. The Visible Voices Podcast amplifies voices both known and unknown, discussing topics of healthcare, equity, and current trends. Our production team includes Stacy Gitlin, Dr. Giuliano Deporto, and me, Dr. Risa E. Lewis. Please find me on social media, at Risa E. Lewis, and through the website, thevisiblevoicespodcast.com. If you like the podcast, please rate and review us. Share the podcast with a friend today. Thank you so much for listening, and as always, to be continued.